It's been some time since I have been here at Apple Valley OPC, but it's uh, a pleasure to be back again. Uh, it is, uh, I had a unique experience in preparing this message. I have often uh, chosen hymns to fit my sermon. Uh, this morning, I had, or last week, I had the opportunity to uh, choose a sermon to fit the hymns that were already chosen for this service. But uh, I am thankful for that because I might never have thought of preaching on Psalm 2 if uh, I had not seen that first hymn, Wondrous King, All Glorious. Uh, let's look at the scripture then uh, that comes from Psalm 2 in its entirety, verses 1 through 12, and hear now God's holy and infallible word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will surely tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as he said, Scripture cannot be broken. Let us pray. Gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and now as we would look into it, we ask your Holy Spirit, the one who wrote the word, would be its interpreter and enlighten our hearts and minds to understanding and to faithful obedience. And this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
We come to a psalm that I would say is a messianic psalm. And I'm not going out very far on a limb to say that because most Bible-believing Christians would say, yes, certainly, Psalm 2 is messianic. But not all of us mean the same thing when we say that. Some people, some uh, good Christians believe uh, that this is a messianic psalm secondarily, that first it is a psalm celebrating the enthronement of David or some other human king of Israel or Judah. And I think it's important to see that this is a messianic psalm in the first place. Oh. That's the manner in which the New Testament treats this psalm. In Acts chapter 13, as Paul preaches and uses it as a reference to Christ and his resurrection, as the author of Hebrews uses it in the first chapter and uses it as a proof, one of the proofs that our Lord Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. If Jesus is not the central focus of this psalm, then we lose some of its impact for us as believers today. It particularly speaks to us and believers and not simply in a general and uh, offhand way. Uh, Listen to the words of one commentator. Though the warlike events of David's reign may have suggested its imagery, the scenes depicted and the subjects presented can only find a fulfillment in the history and character of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same commentator supplies us then with a brief summary of this psalm in these words. In a most animated and highly political style, The writer in four stanzas of three verses each sets forth the inveterate and furious, though futile, hostility of man to God and his anointed. God's determination to carry out his purpose, that purpose as stated more fully by his son, the establishment of the mediatorial kingdom and the imminent danger of all who resist as well as the blessing of all who welcome this mighty and triumphant king. And hearing that as a summary of the psalm, as we go through it this morning, I want to do it under three heads. First, the ungodly and irrational rage of the nations. Second, 
the answer of God to that. And third, the gospel call to rebels. We come first to look at the ungodly and irrational rage of the nations. Uh, The psalm opens with a question. Actually, it's two questions in one. Uh, The first part of the question that the psalm asks is, Why do the nations rage? And then the second part of the question is, And plot a vain or futile thing. The way that uh, question is phrased gives us an understanding of the character of the people expressed as being opposed to God and to his Christ. Uh, the word rage is uh, not a word speaking here of an internal, slow-burning hostility that is not expressed outwardly. The word that is used in Hebrew also carries the connotation of a tumultuous, uh, something that causes a ripple, something that causes confusion. And uh, we also see in that question what that results in. It results in uh, them planning to throw off the restraints of God's law and the rule of his anointed king. Um, Such a thing is by definition ungodly. Now, you can rebel against some things and convince yourself that you are actually standing on God's side. But when you rebel against God, you are being by definition ungodly. No one that loves God rebels against him. Um, One of the lies of Satan in our society today is that people have a right to not only question God, but to be angry with him. Uh, People believe they are unjust, they are justified in impugning not only his actions, but his character as well. The Old Testament tells us that in that society, a child who raised his hand against his mother or father in a totally rebellious fashion, 
fashion was guilty of a capital offense. What more? How greater the offense is when puny human beings raise our fist against God and against the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is exactly what the nations are doing, the psalm said. But not only is it ungodly, it is also, I want to suggest, irrational. Consider who God is, the creator of the universe. The scripture says, he leads forth the stars and gives them all a name. Uh, Think of that power, creating the entire universe and everything in it. And yet, man is going to rebel against this sovereign and almighty creator. And consider who we are. Human beings are the creatures of a moment. Um, I'll be just yesterday. I'm about to be 71 years old, but my childhood seems like it was last week. Seventy years goes by in an instant. And God is eternal. The contrast there is the greatest imbalance you could get, but yet men in their pride think that they can enter the contest with God and uh, win. Now, of course, uh, the way many do it today especially, but even in the days of the psalm, as I read this morning in Psalm 36, the way they do it is by denying God. They pretend there is no God. They pretend his Will is just a made-up law of ancient people. They say, where is God? Who will bring us to account? But that's just false suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The psalmist doesn't answer his questions. It is for him a rhetorical question, but it's edifying to us um, to answer the question. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot a vain thing? The obvious answer is that the rebellious nation chafe at the restrictions of God's rule over them. The law that he has written 
on their hearts. From human perspective, that seems like a natural reaction. If uh, though the one who has authority over you uh, is being harsh and uh, has unreasonable demands upon you, the natural human reaction is to say, I want to be free of this. From another perspective, however, the perspective of God, this is absurdity itself. The mm, And it's absurd not only because of the imbalance of the contestants, but it's absurd for another reason that we will see in a moment. The the perspective of the nations is the perspective of people who hate God and who hate righteousness. The perspective of God and those who understand the law of God as it is, it says, speaks differently. The nations want to throw off God's law. But read the second half of Psalm 19, which starts out, uh, The law of the Lord is perfect. Um, And ends with saying about his commandments, More are they to be desired than gold, yea, even than much fine gold. The problem is not with God and his law. The problem is with man and his heart. By nature, we are sinners. By nature, we hate God. By nature, we hate to be constrained by anything, however good and wonderful it might be. It is the height of insanity to rebel against God. It's law, and it's the height of insanity to rebel against God himself. Just think what the world would be like to live in if every creature kept perfectly the Ten Commandments of God. That wouldn't do away with natural disasters, but it would do away, would it not, with wars with all arguments, with bickering, with deceit, 
with everything that makes life difficult? But what do men want to do? Follow that good way that God has set down in his word? Or no, they want to throw off God's law. It's, it's quite all right from their perspective for others to obey the commandments and therefore not impinge upon me, but not me. I want to be free to do as I want to do. And that's the condition of not one or two. It's so predominant that the psalmist says this is the nation's and their response to God and to his Christ. So then we come to see the answer of God. God, first of all, God the Father answers for himself. And he does so by derisive laughter. That's the first response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. One commentator suggests that there is no more, no greater show of contempt than to laugh at somebody. Uh, if you um, were given an assignment by your superior at work and you came to report to him or her and his or her reaction was, <laughs> what would you think? Would you feel pleased? Or would you say, that man, that woman has contempt for me? Well, God has contempt for rebellion. God has contempt, not fear, contempt. He laughs. It is ridiculous. Um, the nations and their leaders proudly take their stand to resist God and his Christ. And he just looks at it as pitiful and laughable. The language here is anthropomorphic. That means using what is true of human beings and putting, placing it upon God. God is not constructed the way we are and has no lungs and larynx to laugh in the way that men do. But knowing this 
about the language should not lead us to belittle it or to minimize the truth of it. Whatever language may correspond to in the being of God, nothing of the contempt that he holds toward um, rebellion can be taken away. Um, wrathful, the, the next thing after the laughter is wrathful and terrifying speech. How is this accomplished? In nature, God speaks in his wrath in nature. We in the 21st century, and it was true also uh, in the last century, half of which I experienced, tend to think that um, that natural disasters are just circumstances that just happen for no reason or for no cause. Now, I am not here to tell you that every time there is a tornado or a hurricane or a, a, a earthquake, that that is God's judgment. But I cannot stand here and tell you it's never God's judgment. God is in control of all nature. And as he brought Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction through natural occurrences, he also speaks through his control over nature. Um, But... He also speaks then, and at this time, primarily through his word, through the words of the prophets who God sent to proclaim not only to Israel the judgment, the sin that they were guilty of, but to proclaim to the whole earth. All the nations, read the first part of the book of Amos and hear God's judgment upon the surrounding nations to Israel. And you will see that he has sent his word to the nations, uh, making known his anger over rebellion. And then finally, judgment. Judgment of a temporal sort that sometimes comes to men and nations as it did to Nazi Germany in 1945. And history shows other illustrations of the same thing. Or the final judgment 
when the Lord Jesus Christ will return and all men, women, and children will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and hear his impartial and holy decree. That is God's response. But God answers also through his Son, not just by what he himself does or says, but by the Son. And the Son speaks, and he speaks of what God has done through him. The King, Jesus Christ, is enthroned. Um, And we know who this King is, that it's Jesus Christ. Where is he enthroned? Well, he's enthroned in two places. In Zion, and also in the heavenly Zion. Um, Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem on what we call, or some of us call, Palm Sunday. And there the crowds shouted at him, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. They were acknowledge him as their king. And where did he go? Immediately after that, he went to the temple and he cast out the robbers, the the sellers, the money changers there. And by doing that, he he proclaimed, this is my house and this is where my throne is set. But he also is enthroned in heaven at the right hand of God where he was taken up into glory and set down on the majesty on high from where, when, where he continues to judge the nations. Now, there is a unique thing in this enthronement because God the son says here I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me you are my son today I have begotten you no figure In the Old Testament, no individual man was ever called the Son of God. There was a corporate way in which 
people corporately were addressed as sons of the Most High. For example, in Psalm 82.6. And Israel as a whole is personified as God's son in Hosea 11.1, where the prophet says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. But nowhere in Scripture is any one individual called the Son of God, the begotten Son of God, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the... We could spend a lot of time trying to parse out what that means that he is, that today he was begotten in the words of, he speaks in the psalm. And that might be profitable, but the thing that stands out is the uniqueness. He alone is begotten by God as his son, eternally begotten, and also by type begotten again at his enthronement. But there's also a gift that he speaks of, that he has been given by his father, and that is that the nations become his inheritance and the ends of the earth, his possession. This is not speaking of ownership as a landowner owns a piece of property. This is speaking of rule and authority to rule. In the temptation, Satan came to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said, Uh, In one of the temptations, in Matthew, it's the last, he took him to a high mountain and showed him all the nations of the earth and all their glory and said, All these I will give you if you but fall down and worship me. And he said, Be gone, Satan, For it is written, you shall worship the Lord, and him only shall you serve. Why was he able to say that? Why was he able to give up the nations? Well, he didn't give up the nations. Because he knew his father had promised them to him. And promised them to him by way of the cross, because he tells the decree of the Lord, I will give you the nations as your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. 
If the psalm stopped here, it would be a message of despair to the whole world, past, present, and future. Because the nations include our nation. They include us. We are the rebels as well as other people. Uh, But thankfully, the psalm goes on to issue a gospel call to the rebels. This may not be the way you have looked at that last section of the psalm before, because it's not warm and fuzzy as you read it. But considering what the end is without that warning and without that call to turn to Jesus Christ the King, to serve him with fear and to kiss him, then we are left with the judgment of God upon the whole world. The psalmist issues a warning. Be wise. This is in contrast with the foolishness of the plan to throw off the fetters and the cords of God. Be warned. Continued rebellion will lead to what he says it will lead, for his wrath is quickly kindled. You perish in the way. There is also, though, a set of instructions. And the set of instructions really is just the call to come to Jesus Christ in faith. Don't let the language fool you. This is a gospel call. We are called to serve the Lord, to serve Christ with reverence because he is the incarnate Son of God and he deserves our reverence and he deserves our service. But we're also called, and this is the important thing, We're called in this psalm to enter into a personal relationship with the king, the exalted and enthroned Lord. Kiss the son. The psalm promises, therefore, not just destruction upon impenitent rebels, but it promises salvation and deliverance to those who come in reverence and faith to the king. His wrath is quickly kindled, but not upon those who have put their trust 
and faith in him. It is kindled upon those who continue in their rebellion and in their unbelief. So it's my, it's my duty this day to ask you, have you come to Jesus Christ in reverent faith through the work of the Spirit? Are you endeavoring by his help and only through his power to serve him? Or are you still in rebellion? And the words of the psalm are clear. His wrath is quickly kindled. But they're also clear in the promise. Blessed, blessed are all they who take refuge in him. May God bless you, and may God bless his word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a king who sits on high in the heavenly Zion, who is the Lord of all the nations, and who will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we say, as with the apostle, come, Lord Jesus. And this we pray in and through his name. Amen.